0: Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this interview, I had the opportunity to speak with David Pudwill about conspiracy and propaganda in the medical sphere. David spent a number of years in the FDA and is currently doing medical consulting. I wanted to speak with David for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, his experience makes him a good person to, to talk to because he's seen both the business and the governmental side of things a little bit. Also, uh, he was an easy mark for me because he's my cousin, and I've known him my whole life. Uh, and so I knew that that, having come out of the FDA and no longer being there and maybe having to cover all of his bases, he would be able to speak a little bit freely and might be willing to talk with me. So uh, and I know he's smart, right? So I was in uh, when I, I remember my senior year, I went to calculus, and in my calculus class on the first day, I look at my syllabus. And I'm like, ugh, no way. So I dropped it for consumer math, which was a lot harder than I thought it would be, you know, doing taxes and stuff. But um, whatever, I dropped calculus. Meanwhile, he was in, you know, when he was in a freshman or a sophomore in high school, he's taking maths that I'd, I'd never heard of. Uh, you know, he's in like Calc 3 as a freshman or something like that. So he's, he's super smart uh, and, and knows what he's talking about and has educated opinions um, so, I thought it would be a good conversation. Because David and I chat quite a bit, um, I I made this one a kind of uh, freewheeling conversation of sorts. We just kind of, we didn't know exactly where we were going to go. I mean, I had told him a little bit about my season on propaganda before, and so we had we had, had some discussions, but I didn't have as much of a script as I do with other people where I send them questions and uh, you know, they're able to have notes and and think through their responses before we speak. We just kind of went with it, and so you're you'll probably get a different sort of feel from this interview than you do from a lot of the other interviews because it was a little less guided uh, and david 's experience is a little bit different uh, we didn't actually get to some of the the emphases that i I discussed in this section on medical propaganda. you know one of the things that we talked a lot about in regard to medical propaganda is sort of the the deification or the uh, religiosity of of the uh, the medical sphere and the scientific sphere in our culture, uh, as well as you know some of the the these ideas of benevolence where uh, some sometimes things can happen, and the medical community or the scientific community will spin it as well we 're doing these bad things because we love you you know we we know what we 're doing we we seek a greater good, the ends justify the means we got a little bit of that in this conversation but it it wasn't quite as emphasized a lot of our focus was a little bit less on propaganda and a little bit more on conspiracy and how structures of conspiracy can form and so one of the things that we brought up was george carlin's uh, famous dialogue you can get on youtube uh, where he just basically says hey look you don't need uh, you don't need a technical or a formal conspiracy when interests converge And so you get this idea of convergence versus conspiracy. And David talks a lot about that, right? He's not this uh, big conspiracy theorist who sees a conspiracy behind everything. But because of the way that systems are structured, you're going to end up seeing convergence. And you're going to end up seeing these things, which later look like conspiracy as people figure out how to manipulate the systems that have formed. But one might call them convergence over conspiracy. And so that gets a little bit into this gray area of definitions you know how do you define conspiracy do people have to know that they're conspiring for it to be a conspiracy uh, how how much manipulation constitutes conspiracy all that kind of stuff before you listen to the conversation i do want to highlight three things that i think were particularly important to note as you listen first of all david talked a bit about this idea of uh, the importance of diversity or on the flip side, as we've talked about propaganda throughout the season, the, uh, the problem of polarization. Polarization is one of the hallmarks of being propagandized, this, this extreme polarization. And so David talked about the importance of a diversity of voices and how that, at this point, doesn't seem to happen too much, especially in institutions, large corporations, uh, governmental offices. Right, Things become politicized. There's a particular narrative or ideology that needs to be ascribed to. Uh, there are certain agendas and goals that everybody has. And so at some point, you don't really have a diversity of voices who are willing to, uh, to kind of kick against the goads, who are willing to, to push back and put their necks on the line. Everybody just kind of goes along with the flow, with one voice. And that's really dangerous. It's, it's diversity a lot of times in science uh, and, and anything that leads to revolutions and breakthroughs and knowledge. When you don't have a diversity of voices, not only do things become stagnant, but you, you lose the perspective of diversity that allows you to see things that you don't see when everybody's just kind of going with the grain. And so there are, there are dangers to not discovering things, but there are also dangers to when you have one voice and there's dissonance uh, and, and you're the cause of that dissonance, that there can be problems for you. The second thing that you can note is we weren't originally planning on talking about the vaccine. It's one of those things, like I said before in some previous episodes, I don't want to really talk too much about the vaccine because that's one that that's still fresh for a lot of people and uh, for the COVID vaccine. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time on more controversial things that people might have some some different uh, opinions about, and it might be too difficult at this point emotionally for individuals to, to assess those uh, rationally. But I thought that it, it was important as our discussion progressed, I thought it was important to bring up the vaccine because David was talking about diversity and was talking about polarization, and it did sort of uh tie into our discussion on the religiosity of of science and medicine because as david was saying you've you've got people who are essentially they've become religious either way about the covid vaccine right i'm going to vaccinate my infant i I don't know if anybody vaccinated their infant but you know that extreme you have people who are are like i'm going to just vaccinate as soon as I can, get as many boosters as I can. It doesn't matter if, if my kid has like hardly any risk and it doesn't matter if this doesn't really protect uh, my family members from having the virus spread to them because my kid can still get it. It doesn't matter. No, none of that matters uh, because this is going to make me feel safe and this is going to be my savior to vaccinate uh, my my kid. At the same time, you've got this uh, religiosity that, that seeks a savior in something like like freedom, where it's uh, no way am I going to get my vaccine because the government, uh, nobody can be trusted. All of the, the doctors who are out there, anybody who, who, uh, who would say that the vaccine is good is on the government payroll, part of a conspiracy. And you've got people who, who just can't see any good in the vaccine and can't understand why why uh, the vaccine would be pushed and any legitimacy to it. And so you've got just this religiosity, this polarization on all sides, and and there's not really a look at the data. There's not really a, a rational stance, and so we did get into the vaccine, and and I think that's a good place to take a look at this idea of polarization, uh, religiosity. Uh, you know, the, this how polarization leads to savior complex on on either side. Something's going to be your savior, and that's what propaganda does. Right, it instills fear. And it creates these, these poles that can't think objectively or rationally. And then it ends up providing you with a savior. you got a different savior at each pole, but pro- all propaganda is going to provide you with a savior. And so that leads us to the, the final thing. You know, if, we're, if we are polarized and we are, we are very far apart from individuals at the other pole, how do you deal with those people who are essentially enemies? And if you're in the middle and, and you're getting shot at by both sides because everybody hates you, right? Because propaganda, if you're not with us, uh, you're against us. And so both poles hate anybody in the middle. And David talks a little bit about this. He, he uh, discusses how do, you, how do you try to change people's mind? How do you have discussions with people? And he talks about the importance of listening, of course, which is, is vital – and then he talks about the importance of love, which listening is a form of love a lot of times, like truly listening, not just listening so you can respond and chime in, but truly listening in love because you care about other people and you care about what they think. And I've I've mentioned him throughout the seasons here, but Daryl Davis is a great example of this, right? You've got people who go out and hate the KKK because the KKK is just, uh, I mean, atrocious in their their thinking and and the things that they've done throughout the years. And so people will be terrible to them. And of course, the KKK is terrible to people. But then you've got this, this black guy, Daryl Davis, who sits down, listens to them, and talks with them and shows them humanity. And he doesn't change everybody's mind. He might not even change most people's mind. But because of his love and listening, he has changed the minds of over 200 KKK people, I think it is at this point. And that's something that we're going to get into at the end of the season, when we assess all the things that we've learned and looked at, what do we do with this? And what do we do with the idea of truth? How do we come to know things? And then what do we do with that? How do we propagate love and truth? And the answer is going to be, for if you want kind of a sneak peek, but uh, the Bible's model is discipleship. That's what Jesus did. And I think that it is... it is it. Even though it's similar to propaganda, right? Uh, depending on how you define propaganda, right? You're just propagating a belief. So discipleship is propagating a belief, but it does so in a different manner. And so we're going to get to that at the end of the season. But I think David gives you a sneak peek at that, where uh, love and listening and uh, and and conversing with somebody else and that that is seeking to propagate truth but it's seeking to do it in a non-objective manner because rather than objectifying somebody, a non-objectifying manner, I'm sorry, uh, rather than objectifying somebody as, as some uh, end-goal ideology to disseminate, you know, like a virus getting inside of them and changing their mind, it views them as another human worthy of love and somebody who you want to love in truth as well. You want them to be able to love in truth. And so discipleship and and this polarizing propaganda are very different things. And this uh, w- my brief conversation with David kind of alludes to some of of what we're going to get to later. One final note before we get to the discussion proper, there are a number of images referenced in the episode and I always put things that that we mention or talk about in episodes I put them uh, links to those in the show notes. So definitely go and check out the show notes. For links to some of the things that we reference, so without further ado, here is my conversation with David Pudwell.'m
1: I'm, I'm David Pudwill and I do uh, medical device uh, consulting for a number of companies I've worked at FDA I, I've worked for a couple different medical device manufacturers and um, i've I've also known Derek uh, for, for, for my, you know, just about my entire life. So, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's some useful you know background, I think maybe at a high level.
0: Yeah. You only want to say things that are going to give you credibility,
1: <laughs> but knowing you for a very long time, doesn't that, doesn't that lend a degree of credibility? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're colluding. There's uh, there, there's something to be said for, I think the
0: path of the discussion here, but anyway, it's true. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've been talking for for a while. We talk every couple of months, and so while I'm going through this this propaganda season, I've been talking to you and and bouncing some ideas off of you. And so, of course, when uh, when I got to the medical section of propaganda, I, you were the first person that came to mind to talk about maybe yeah. how you see propaganda or conspiracy or don't see it in yeah. in the real world. So you sh- you shot me a bunch of different ideas. Um, and you are the expert completely here in this episode. So, why don't you go ahead and talk about your first impressions when I was talking to you, and, and uh, what came to mind?
1: Yeah. So, you know, some some of the first things that, that that come to come to mind for me when when we're thinking about you know conspiracy, and, and we've heard a lot of uh, of this language in the last couple of years, in particular since we've had uh, you know, the, you know, the pandemic situation with COVID and there's a lot of things happening around FDA and, you know, and other government agencies and, uh, you know, my, my general views, you know, on this is, um, that we've, we've set up a lot of institutions and, and, and those institutions and the way that they've operated have fundamentally eroded public trust in them and how they operate And so there's a lot of grasping at straws as that happens. And as institutions that, you know, you've come to trust and rely on, as you find out the information you're getting from them is not as good as it used to be. Maybe it never was as good as you thought it was. Um, And and you start to go down these rabbit holes of, you know, questioning everything you've ever known. And that's a very common, you know, thing. I think once you find out one thing is false or some falsehood, you know, happened, it's like you know, okay, we're in December, right? And uh, I I don't uh, teach my, you know, kids a whole lot about Santa Claus. They know about the guy, but they've always, for their entire lives, been the ones who showed up and teachers complain because they're telling other kids that Santa Claus doesn't exist. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like this, this kind of thing. All the other kids are like horrified and the teachers are like, you know, calming them down. No, 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 you know, don't, don't worry about that <laughs> you know, that thing. So you know, I, I'm I I have no problems popping people's you know bubbles about you know some like shared narratives that we have you know culturally, which you know sometimes you know sometimes serve a purpose um, you know, but but aren't necessarily true, right? And then when people find out they're false, they've like all of their belief in everything is shattered. It's like what else is is a lie that you've told me? Um, and, and so I think that's just a very common human reaction so i've even had some of that myself definitely over the course of the last you know couple of years like wait what else is not true that, I, you, know, that you know we've been led to believe um but i've worked directly you know within you know government you know, institutions and and within that bureaucracy and uh you know my my view is mostly it's a it's a systemic you know ca- you know kind of an issue in terms of how institutions are set up how they interact um, and uh one of my biggest concerns is the revolving door in in the medical space between our government institutions and the industries that that those institutions regulate. and also the flow of money uh that that, that happens uh between the the, uh, um, the 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 corporations and FDA and other um, and, and other groups and in, in terms of funding for, review of submissions and a lot of people you know can tell you oh well that that money is not tied to an outcome uh with, to which i will tell you but there is a percentage approval that fda leadership expects you know of, of of these products so any individual product may not have to be approved they can disapprove that one individual product but overall, there's an expectation that a certain percentage of products that go through FDA will get approved, and that means that if you are a very large company submitting a very large number of products, at some point, you, you, you will get some of these products through and approved at, at
0: a relatively high certainty.
1: So, so anyone- there's
0: actually a quota? Yes, there are quotas. Oh, I would have just thought that, you know, it it either passes or it fails, like it's, it's safer. It's... And,
1: and it's not that the quote, again, a quota doesn't apply to any individual submission, but there is a sense overall, especially for clinical studies, uh, that there's a certain percentage of those that are going to get approved at each round of review. So um, so that drives certain incentive structures, right? And it's, it's the same thing for overall products, that the the incentive structures are set up at FDA where it's very difficult to disapprove a product and it's relatively easy to approve it. Now that just from an FDA standpoint, I don't mean from a company standpoint, the company does need to do a lot of work to get a product approved or cleared in some cases. So there are different tiers that FDA will review and and, and allow a product onto the market uh, with. So we we can call them all marketing authorizations, but they're not all approved, like not not all products are approved. Um, But for those products that are approved by FDA, there are certain legal protections in in many instances then for those companies, uh, for those products that have now been reviewed by FDA. And it limits the ability of end users like you and me who may use that product to sue those those manufacturers so there's there's some limitations on liability and we've seen that very much so with the vaccines for instance there's a lot of le- uh, legal liability protection that's that's come into play
0: with uh, with that um okay so, and, so yes yeah go ahead uh so so basically just to to make sure i'm understanding correctly um and and we talked about this a little bit earlier too, where where you said, Well, you're not really a big conspiracy theorist, but when things get institutionalized, stuff happens. And I think George Carlin, uh, when he yeah. was having a discussion yeah. with Bill Maher before, and yeah. he said the big said, club, and
1: you're not in it, but yeah. you were gonna say yeah. it.
0: that too. But uh he said, you know, you don't need a formal conspiracy <laughs> when when interests converge or converge, yes. You know, so it's okay, you've got a quota that needs to be filled. You've got a company that has the resources to do the legwork and pay the pay all the financial burden of submitting, and they can submit a lot of things. Yes. And so, okay, maybe there's not a uh, a conspiracy where people are, in the technical sense, conspiring, but the yes. system is is sort of conspiring, um, yes, unintelligently. Just and, the way that and I would
1: up. say it's deeper than that too. And this is this is one thing for a lot of companies to keep in mind is the relationship with FDA can at times be adversarial, but generally in the pre-market space, the FDA reviewer wants to see products approved because it is something that they can point to as having been a part of and having participated in. It's much harder to sell a disapproval as a win. It's much easier to sell. Look, I helped this company get their product onto the market and approved. You know, I was part of that team that got this product that now everybody's aware of, approved on the market. There's a there, there's a fundamental incentive for those people within FDA to see an approval. So it's so it's e- even deeper than just let's say quotas, which I, I would say quotas maybe not quite the right terminology, but these are metrics their key process indicators, let's call them KPIs, that FDA tracks. And because that's something that they're tracking, you know, everybody, you know, internally is, you know, is is very much aware of that. And there's a pressure uh, to, to some level, at least, to see more approvals. Now, that can be managed in a positive way, let's say, which, which is that, The reviewers at FDA can reach out to companies and let them know what evidence they need to be able to approve a product, right? Um, And so you're not necessarily lowering the bar, but you are helping the company provide better evidence. But even then, if you have a predetermined level of evidence uh, or set of information that you're looking for, we know statistically that, okay, let's say you're looking for a 95% confidence in the data set you have what does that mean that means uh one out of 20 times you will get a false positive right so if 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 you have companies that are just throwing everything at the wall occasionally you will get compelling evidence at a 90 or 95 percent confidence interval uh that is just pure happenstance that, you know, a product that doesn't really work on a population level uh, did happen to provide sufficient evidence that FDA is happy to look at it and and put that on the market. And so we try to set those thresholds high enough that that's not a very common occurrence, but it's it's set at a point where it does happen in real life. And we see this, Um, you know, I mean, FDA looks at uh, you know literally thousands of products every year um, you know may, maybe more if you're gonna count you know you know uh, uh, you know across various divisions and what they're you know going out and inspecting but in terms of new products that make it onto the market in medical devices alone, uh, there are about four thousand products that go through what uh, th- this five ten k process at, at, at fda, which is Sort of a me too. I'm just like this other device that's already on the market. There are 4,000 of those products every year, and then there are another, uh, let's say, you know, 30 to 50 products that are truly novel that come onto the market every year. And that means even for the very novel products, uh, at the at the kind of statistical confidence, you know, that you know levels that we expect a couple of those products might make it to market and not
0: actually work on a population level. I I don't know if this was, I don't remember if it was a, a if it would have been up your alley there at the FDA, but uh, are you familiar with Elizabeth Holmes? Yes. Very, very familiar okay. with that. I had <laughs> actually,
1: um, yeah, my, my wife was just reminding me of this because I had, uh, Uh, been talking, uh, talking with them. I hadn't gotten into, I I forget if I had done an initial interview with them. I think I'd actually spoken with them and done an initial interview with these people before this all went truly sideways. Um, uh, Because uh, it was a group at the time when I was looking at this before all this came out, it had looked like they just needed good regulatory help and not that there was like malfeasance you know it was just it 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 appeared from the outside that they were able to do what they were claiming scientifically but they lacked you know adequate guidance let's say and and assistance with somebody who was savvy about the regulatory landscape but it turns out you know as far as i can tell uh you know from 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 what What's come out in in the intervening years, it looks like there's nothing I could have done to really help these people because because there were some real fundamental underlying issues about the truthfulness
0: of the information that was being presented, so, yeah, I read uh, Tyler Schultz has i mean it it came up as one of my free reads, and I was like, oh conspiracy, this this will be perfect for the season, so. I was a, it was a really short read, but it's this guy who was a part of the project, and he started, like, seeing red flags fairly early or earlier than a lot of other people, and um, it's, it's and kind you of have like to his be, You have to but, be careful about it, though, too, because, like, on, on the flip side, I
1: believe that what they were trying to achieve is possible. And the, the problem is uh, what we're finding out with a lot of lab-developed tests, and FDA is now trying to push Congress to make some changes to how lab-developed tests and, and these sorts of you know, uh, uh, you know, diagnostics that, that Theranos was working on, how they end up getting reviewed and, 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 and approved or put on the market, that there would be sort of a fundamental shifting in how that whole landscape is managed. Um, that may very well have been one of the things that was messing Theranos up was that they were trying to use some of these tests, and these tests are not interchangeable. You know, so, you know some of them perform better than others, and uh, when they started getting these really wonky results, the problem that, 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 that ended up manifesting was they started obfuscating truth to people that they should have been truthful with. So it's very possible if they'd gone a different route, even though they ran into those challenges of having these discrepancies, if they'd actually pushed into that, it's possible they would have made their way through it. And I think somebody could end up doing effectively what Theranos was trying to do. The the problem is instead of actually trying to pursue truth, and trying to get to the bottom of what was causing the discrepancies they decided to like paper over it and then you know just it, you know the whole the whole thing went sideways and that that gets into something else i think that, that that's similar to what we've talked about you know in terms of just how you want to operate in the world you know if, if if you are pursuing truth you know then 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 you can you know you can build you can build something meaningful. Whereas if, you know, if you start lying even to yourself, I mean, you, you very quickly, you very quickly bring just all kinds of calamities down upon yourself and the people around you.
0: Yeah. Um, reading that book, it was, it was interesting because there are, there are a number of different ways, you know, that you can lie or obfuscate truth. Uh, so, you know, some of them, I took a statistics class, terrible at it, but Lying I did with statistics. <laughs> oh, I did appreciate I appreciated all the various ways that you could just manipulate things. It's like, well, you know, I can just change the test and it'll give me, you know, a different a different outcome. And it's it's kind of cool what you can do, but it it also gave gave me a lot less t- a lot less uh faith in a lot of these statistics and tests and things. So with with uh Theranos, you know, they've got I forget exactly how it worked, but he talked about how, you know, let's say you need 95% uh in order to yeah. to move forward. It's like, well, they they might have been at like 60%, but they were uh if they increased a little bit, well, they were 95% better than what they were before or something like that. I, I forget exactly what they did, but they, they would change the numbers. So you have people who are purposefully changing numbers, but then you also have, like, he talked about the, just, um, how gregarious Elizabeth Holmes was, how just outgoing and like how confident she was. And like, he'd look around and be like, well, everybody else like believes it and, they must just see things that I don't and how easy it is to put your head down. And it's not really a conspiracy when you've got people who really believe this stuff to a certain extent, uh, a conspiracy, the way that we call things conspiracy, but it's, you've got a lot of people going along with, with things that are are really shady and they just don't see it.
1: So I want to, I want to bring up uh, a, an, an image that I, that I love. It, it's this, it's this uh, interesting yeah. image and we can drop it. We can drop it into something later. Data information knowledge insight conspiracy theory and uh you know and and again my my view is when you connect those dots in that sort of final you know sort of picture where it's a it's a flying unicorn okay it's a Mm -hmm. it's a pink flying unicorn you know it's conspiracy theory and you sit here and you go well it's only conspiracy theory if your intuition is wrong you know if if, Mm -hmm. you're putting all these dots together into that shape ends up being, you know, false, then, and then sure, it's conspiracy. Um, But, you know, sometimes your intuition is leading you in correct directions about how some of these various bits and pieces are connected. The the thing we need to be careful about is what conclusions we draw uh, from that. And that's what I'd say about FDA, you know, in general, and, you know, our government agencies and, and the way that we navigate, you know, health information. And, you know, medical products and other products coming onto the market, um, you know, and even in situations like, uh, you know, like Theranos, where they were, um, you know, they, they were taking actions that were not in the best interest of their customers, of patients, of, of the rest of us, and even of future people who might solve the problem that they said they wanted to solve. So they've actually made it harder because of what they did for anyone else to come along and try to solve that same problem. Because you, you you now get painted with the same brush that Theranos got painted with. As you know, okay, well that's a really nice story, but you know the last time anybody did this, it was a bunch of lies. Um,
0: and it's just a shame. You know, I remember a while ago studying apologetics and and you know the case for the resurrection. Of Jesus and so this this uh one cold case detective out there in LA he actually he, he wrote a book and he talked about how uh, uh one of the things that that is difficult to do when you have conspiracies is to have a lot of people involved because uh, when you have a lot yes. of people involved you can't have conspiracies uh because because they you know they'll squeal they'll change the stories they'll lie all that stuff and so as I've been studying conspiracies, I found that that's not true. Like, it's not completely true. And so there, there are two other factors that play in, and you identified one when we were first starting. So the, the two other things that I think there are, so let's say you've got a lot of people, right, involved. Um, nobody's going to squeal. Like, it's not in their interest to squeal unless there's pressure on them. Yes. Right. So if you're if you're the president of the United States, you can pretty much do whatever you want, and somebody's going to cover it up for you. Or or if you do uh, get uh, get caught, like you're probably not really going to have a lot of ramifications on you. So there's there's little pressure compared to somebody else. Um, but then there's there's a third one, which is ideology. That cuts,
1: it cuts both ways, though, too. You know, because then all of a sudden there's a lot of uh, upside to revealing that because you can, you know, you 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 can become the famous whistleblower, like uh, you know, who, who, who took down an administration. You know, this was the whole thing with, um, oh, what, uh, you know, these uh, these journalists uh, with the Nixon administration, right? So, you know, there th- there is some incentive there, maybe not for the people involved to share the information. But for other people to reveal it, so you, you you do get some interesting counterbalance there, in some
0: cases. Yeah, I think a lot of times the people in in positions are egotistical, and so Hitler. I mean, if you if you're killing, massacring millions of people, you've got to know that there's going to be a significant consequence if you fail. But he's like, well, I'm in charge. I've got the power. I'm not going to fail. So I think. You see, the oh, same It's thing also in this...
1: interesting because they, uh, in a lot of the recordings, because they have a lot of like table discussions and things, and there's a lot of hinting around the edges about this. And I haven't gone and listened to all of them, but my understanding is they, they tend, I, I don't know that they ever came out in some of these sort of settings and said any of this explicitly. And, you know, so it's very interesting how some of these things happen where, um, they don't get discussed openly you know everybody knows what's going on but there are a number of settings in which it still doesn't get brought up and that's the kind of thing you do see happening you know i i would say you know to, you know in in some context with uh you know review of of various uh, medical devices and drugs and these kinds of things at fda where, okay, here's the, you know, here's how the system works. And people are just going about doing their, you know, their, you know, their, uh, you know, various you know, pieces of the puzzle there. Um, but nobody's going in and revisiting, you know, is this the right approach? You know, nobody's taught, like, there are all kinds of things that aren't talked about. and And you could either say, well you know, so in the case of, let's say, Hitler, I always hate going to Nazis, you know, because it's sort of like the edge case, right? But it's like, well, they're not talking about it, which means, like, something is going on because nobody's talking about it. Sometimes they're not talking about it because they don't, either there's not something going on or there's not a conspiracy in the way that I would say, you know, we had with, let's say, uh, uh, what was happening in in Germany in World War II. You had, you know, a very clear set of, malfeasance you know operations you know going on um whereas a lot of our institutional challenges you know a, a lot of people may not be saying some of the quiet parts out loud which is concerning so whenever there are you know things that are known sort of more generally um you know but nobody talks about it uh, you know that's always a concern um you know but as far as i'm aware you know, being pretty deep on, you know, on the, you know, having been pretty deep on the industry side and on the FDA side, you know, the challenge in terms of our institutions is that most people believe that the system is operating, uh, you know, uh, as intended um, or that it's operating appropriately. Um, You know, but, but, but I would argue that operating is intended doesn't mean that it's operating in the best interests or as well as it could uh, to actually uh, fulfill its stated purposes. So if we were designing a system that was focused on advancing the public health, um, then that system would do more to bring in new entrants. That system would do less to crush uh, new ideas and advances, which can help uh, people and there, there's much more of a focus, and it's just sort of a, a default focus on preventing harm, as opposed to accelerating uh, uh, advancements that can be positive. And so, so there's this very conservative bent to bureaucracies as they grow and to people who are in charge. I mean, just take a look at COVID policies. What's the what's the you know primary driver? You had some states that took different actions but in a large state you will get blamed for anything that goes wrong and the big thing you can see that could go wrong is that a bunch of people could die in a pandemic and so if you're overly draconian most people will end up forgiving you even if you were wrong if you aren't draconian enough you will be seen as you know just totally inept and incapable you know, regardless of why you were, you know, less heavy-handed, you know, in terms of your approach. And we've seen that, you know, work out, you know, where the only reason that people who were less draconian, you know, in certain states, the only reason they've gotten uh you know, positive press, let's say in Florida, uh, for, for Ron DeSantis is because he ended up being right, not because the actions he took were you know, more in alignment with, let's say, American values of, you know, liberty and, you know, freedom. If if a bunch of people had died, he would be a goat. You know, nobody would have any respect for him. Uh, it's only because he was right that he was able to get away with, you know, uh, uh, holding on to, let's say, the, you know, these kinds of, you know, values, which is sort of a scary thing, you know, for me, being someone who, Um, you know, wants to see those values of individual autonomy and liberty, um, free association, you know, I want to see those things advanced. Um, But, you know, I think the only reason the public tolerates, you know, that is when it works. And, you know, if, if people start dying, the public will very quickly turn on you and expect very, very draconian measures. And they're willing to tolerate very draconian measures. I mean, the, the 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 public has been willing to tolerate things that I never would have imagined you could get away with doing, you know, in in, uh, you know, in this country. And you've seen it, you know, in a couple different, you know, sort of cultural contexts. But
0: I, I don't want to derail us too far into that direction. <laughs> oh, right. Um Yeah. Going back to the, you know, so I think you, I think you identified how a system can just work out, uh, with, with people just kind of complying and, and kind of doing status quo assessments and thinking, well, everything's working. Uh, the, the third things, right. So if you have a lot of people involved in conspiracies, but also if, uh, if there's not a lot of pressure, the third thing is, is the one that you, I thought identified at the beginning and, and hope you can talk a little bit more about, but you, uh, if you have people who have a very strong ideology, you know, very zealous about something or or believe yeah. something very strongly, then even if there's a lot of pressure and even if there are several people involved in the conspiracy, that ideology can unite them and actually, yeah. uh, you know, solidify them in their position in spite of pressure and everything. Yeah. So you were talking a little bit. I I don't know that that you would have called all the people in. Uh, in government and business and the scientific community, zealous for an ideology, but you did talk about a lack of diversity. Yes. So there is kind of one one uh, preeminent there's, ideology. Could you talk about? Yeah, that? there's
1: yeah, there's a monolithic
0: culture. I think that's that's that, that's
1: emerging out of you know out of that, and we've seen and some other people have talked about this, where uh, you know a lot of the drug companies, for instance, they will uh, uh, bow to just about anything that FDA you know, asks of them or is looking for, uh, because to some extent, it's in their best interest for survival as an organization to just do whatever FDA is asking of them. <clears throat> and I see this leading to, in many cases, some fundamentally unscientific approaches to the way that we manage risk um, and the way that we advance public health. And, you know, so so, so one clear example in, in in my mind is around uh, uh, something called biocompatibility testing, and some experts could could very well disagree with me. Uh, but I've looked at literally hundreds of uh, of medical device submissions, so I'm I'm talking specifically about medical devices here. And <clears throat> I've heard of situations where the biocompatibility testing results required a change in materials. I've heard that this has happened. I've personally never seen it. So, the only thing I've ever seen happen is that more tests are run and those additional tests demonstrate that the materials are fine. So, if over the course of hundreds and hundreds of devices, we have a less than 1% likelihood that a particular test is going to find anything meaningful, probably we should be looking at other metrics and other approaches to find out what that thing is that we should be controlling for, as opposed to slaughtering uh, lots of animals, doing lots of expensive testing for very little, if any, benefit in most cases. Um, And you actually have a delay in time, so all of this testing takes a certain amount of time, and that means that these innovations take longer to get to market, they take longer to get a first sale. Uh, it takes longer to get into, uh, uh, you know, a patient to see if it works. And that means that for most of those products that are perfectly safe and they get demonstrated to be safe by just conduct conducting more testing that takes more time, um, those products end up not getting to market as quickly. And then you're not able to see whether it works or doesn't work, um, you know, and and sort of fail fast, which is kind of the... Silicon Valley approach to um, you know, more software kinds of products. Um, and, and the concern within the medical community and, and at FDA is, well, we're really worried that bad things will happen, right? So it's this hyper-focus on the negative outcome as opposed to being aware that not seeing the positive outcomes is also a type of a harm that you are inflicting as a system. And so we're spending a a large amount of time and energy on solutions that don't work, that we don't know don't work until much later in the process after we spent lots and lots of money developing them and doing all of this testing. And there are probably some slightly different approaches to make sure that we're adequately controlling for those risks um, while accelerating the overall process so that you can get a solution into a subject, because even if it's safe, let's say, so let's say that there's a product which is safe from a material standpoint, right? So if you put it inside your body, it's not gonna cause some really scary side effect, right? Even then, if it doesn't provide the benefit, the benefit, if there's no benefit, then no level of risk is tolerable, right? So if it doesn't help you, it, it, it doesn't matter that it's safe because we shouldn't bother to spend the time and energy and take the risks of a surgical procedure to put it inside of you and we didn't find that out until years down the line after we'd done all of this preclinical work um, and, and so a, a lot of that work is is something that we're doing simply because we've always done it And there's some initiatives to try to get away from certain types of animal testing and do other tests uh, but but I would say, you know, my view in, in the current landscape that we have, uh, there should be some alternate approaches uh, to, to how we manage safety. So, if you use these particular materials that are manufactured using these specific approaches, using you know, these specific molds and, and manufacturing aids, then we don't have any questions for you. So, you can, like put this into a totally different bucket, but that's not what we do right now. Um and and that would significantly help advance innovation and help advance the public health, uh, but nobody's talking about those kinds of things. Everybody's just very fixated in the the ruts that we've already uh you know made in, in you know in the road, and, and nobody's looking for alternate solutions to address this on a more systemic level and the And the issue we run into here is no individual company will be served by trying to rock the boat, right? But the overall industry is harmed because we've just locked ourselves into this particular approach and everybody takes longer. Um, there's, there's another interesting diagram, you know, about strength, uh, uh, strings and springs and traffic conditions. So this idea that, you know, you can have a fastest route uh, if it's just one car or a small number of cars on a small road. Uh, but what ends up happening is you get to an equilibrium where uh, everybody's taking longer to get to their destination than if everybody just used an optimal route. So, and there's no way to optimize the system to speed it up once it's already in place because everybody has their individual incentive, which drives the overall system to be less efficient. And that's what I see happening uh, within medical device review and drug review and and just in terms of how FDA you know, operates. So you have, you have that side of things where you have this inefficiency, but then on the flip side, you have this very large uh, barrier to entry for new people you know, coming in and it's almost inefficient by design because it will kill you know, new companies coming in. So whether that's what the system intended or it's just a happy accident, for big players there's no real incentive for the big players today for the you know billion and uh, you know uh, larger valued companies to change the system because currently it works in their favor to prevent competition from coming and eating their lunch
0: yeah no i think that that describes conspiracies what I, what i'm finding most conspiracies to end up being is their happy accidents but with some of them, at some point, people recognize the accident that happened and start to take advantage of it. And um, so, so it's not like this, you know, decades in the making, people conspiring to create this elaborate system. It's just, you know, interests converge and now you you have what you have and people know how to manipulate the system. So if you're a big company, it's advantageous to you because you've got your your team of lawyers and you've got all your money and you know the system. And you can flood the system with your stuff and you can prevent competition from from coming in. Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't want it to change.
1: And it's the same thing with uh, standards development. It's sort of an interesting – maybe there's a broader application for this. So whenever you're standardizing an approach uh, to how you go about something, there's a baseline or there should be a baseline assumption. If you're ever trying to standardize something that – it's worth standardizing because you already know everything there is to know in a space, so you can optimize it. But what we find, uh, so the International Standards Organization develops a lot of standards. FDA participates in helping to write those standards. Those standards are mandated in much of the rest of the world. In the U.S., they, t- they typically, let's say, on, in terms of FDA, are quote-unquote, let's call them voluntary. Though, you know, it's strongly suggested that you comply, right, with these standards. Um, And what you end up finding out is that these very large organizations spend energy and resources staffing those standard writing committees, right, with people who are aligned with their interests and either on purpose or as a happy accident, end up codifying standards which are to their benefit and not to the benefit of their competition i've seen this directly happen when i was working in industry where one of the one of the competitors ended up writing their own version of a connector that they'd already implemented in their devices they made it mandatory so we had to change all of our devices to use that connector that was their proprietary connector of the competition you know, so we had to spend all this this time and money and resource, and maybe it's just because, hey, this is a good idea. everybody should use this, right? But the cynic in me says, you know that that you know there was a little bit more to it, you know than you know than that, especially when it became the you know expected um standard uh, that FDA and the rest of the world you know were pointing to as as what you should be doing you know in this space and you know any number of arguments you have that may or may not be valid uh just fall on deaf ears at that point because everybody's decided and there's a lot of energy uh and and uh momentum you know uh behind staying the course once you've decided to do something and you you just can't get anybody to to change their minds once you know once it's been Uh, uh, codified, or it's very, very difficult for anybody to change their minds. And so this is the other way that, you know, that that can work. Um, And and the, the little aside there, I would say, which is a little bit shocking is that FDA, a government agency now effectively directs people to go to an international standards organization to go purchase, Uh, copies of those standards so that they can apply them to their products. But by all, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's required by FDA. Now they're going to tell you there are alternatives, but you know, that's going to cost you way more time and money than just giving these guys a couple bucks to implement their, you know, their, uh, you know, approach. And, you know, you could say that that benefits small companies, maybe, uh, but really, it's it's a very strange thing that you've got a government agency directing people towards, you know, paying for standards from a private or, you know, at least a non, you know, US, you know, government, you know, entity, you know, you're, you're now instead of getting, you know, the, the the input for free, which FDA does, you know, give you in their guidance documents, generally, you're now getting you're, you're now having to pay some third party. You know, to do what the government wants you to do. It's it's a very it's a very
0: interesting, twisted you know situation from my perspective. Okay, so there there was a lot there, but I want to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, uh,
1: and we haven't even gotten into where where I want to get to, which is the revolving door. But that's okay. That's that that's, right.
0: that's, that's later on. But so continue. <laughs> yeah, w- one of the things that you mentioned, and if you don't want to get into it at all, I, I know that we want to avoid vaccines. A bit, but there's one thing that you said and you can choose to answer it or not, but you're talking about how y- you think that that things should be data driven um, and uh, that that the system as it's set up does not do that uh, in, in no. regard to, but you also said that you want to get things out to help people. Uh, as opposed to to kind of being too hard on them on the front end, so it seems yep. like with with the vaccines, there are a lot of people complaining that uh, they, you know, we don't know what they what they are and what damage they could do. And in the one sense, okay, that's true. There's there's tested. some of
1: that which is hyperbole, but but
0: continue. Yeah,
1: we, we, we've got some good data on both what's in them and 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 also what they can do. Though right. I, I I can appreciate the nuances of of that concern but most of the people shouting that are disingenuous actors right right time. so but but continue
0: yeah so so you've got this uh, this vaccine that's like okay well we really don't know what it's going to do but you've also got this this virus that could potentially be bad we, we didn't know right you don't know you have to take your your best guess and it could have been bad and the only reason people aren't being flayed right now Who who took the the freedom route is because it ended up working out because it worked. The two point conversion was good. Um. So, but but at the same time, you
1: would have been yeah. Otherwise, you know, let's lock them up and throw away the key, man.
0: But when we were talking, uh, you did have reservations in the push for this being on on uh, done on youth. And and certain yes. demographics because you said and, and especially
1: and c- pregnant women. I mean, that that's the thing. I I have still not seen good data, and I still see communications people from FDA pushing, you know, that everybody should go get themselves vaccinated and boosted. And getting vaccinated is not the same as getting boosted. And and this is the thing, like nuanced medical people, you know, can tell you about the accumulated risk that is inherent in getting additional booster shots and that somewhat depends on whether you've been exposed to the virus as well and so you know the the individual risk profiles are going to vary um so so there's a lot of disingenuity if that's a word um in how a lot of this is communicated and there's a lack of nuance projected it's and, and the communication tends to be go out and get yourself fully vaccinated well One that's a moving target. Two, we also know that if you have natural immunity, it's actually um, uh, it's once you have natural immunity, it's better. Before you have natural immunity, you might be in a population that would be better served having uh, some protection from vaccinations, but that protection wears off over time. So it's sort of a a double-edged sword. You almost want, and I'm not advocating for this, but like it almost sounded like you want to go get yourself you know, vaccinated to blunt the effect of, you know, of the virus and then go put yourself in a position where you will get COVID so you can have some of the like longer term, you know, benefits of immunity. But at the same time, both the vaccination and COVID itself have certain like negative health, uh, you know, effects. And anybody who's going to tell you otherwise that, you know, vaccines are perfectly safe and there's no side effects, they're lying. But anybody who tells you that vaccines are the most dangerous thing, you know, even these vaccines, which aren't really vaccines as we normally think of, of uh, a vaccination, because um, it, it only confers a limited protective benefit, right? So it really depends on the individual circumstance. And, and this is where my view is you should have access to treatments, right? So I'm, I'm in favor of in enhancing access, right? without necessarily telling everybody that they ought to go do this, especially young people. You know, unless you have a five-year-old or a child who is at some really enhanced risk, uh, I I don't know why we are pushing uh, uh, vaccinations in those age ranges based on data, which is not very good. I mean, the, the, you know, the, 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 the data, you know, didn't didn't meet at least initially when we started rolling a lot of this out into, into children, the data did not demonstrate just sort of the basic level of what I would have expected that data to show for us to broadly expand it and recommend it in everybody. Now, it's one thing to say it's available. And so if you're high risk, you should talk with your doctor and think about going and getting it. And so we have this, like, lack of nuance in how we have these discussions. It's kind of an all or nothing. It's like, you know, either all of the children should go get vaccinated or we don't have an approval and no one can get vaccinated. It's like that isn't it's somewhat anti-scientific and has become very tribal because everybody wants a counter position. Uh, But reality is a lot more nuanced where you say, no, I actually want there to be Available treatments, recognizing that maybe we don't have really robust data yet, but we have enough data maybe that certain populations should consider it at a higher, um, uh, you know, level of adoption than the general public, you know, or or at least than children generally. And you know, I'm I'm also I, I look, it's a family decision, you know, for a lot of these things, but if we're going to vaccinate children to protect you know vulnerable adults I, I I generally see that you know dimly as well. There might be instances where it makes sense, but you know this is sort of where we've gotten to in in di- in the discourse is that we are vaccinating children to either protect you know actually vulnerable adults or to protect adults who feel vulnerable. You know, so a lot of adults want to go get their child vaccinated because it's going to make them feel better about either their child's safety or their safety or the safety of the community when the evidence does not necessarily support that. And so we get a lot of people making fundamentally unscientific decisions about their medical care, and it, it's sort of shocking that we've gotten to this point where uh, uh, you know we, we have such a tribal uh, you know approach to medicine. And we see this especially at our institutions. Um, you know, I would say historically, you know, FDA, um, you know, uh, uh, has been, it has had a political bent, but it has been scientific in its approaches and its decisions. For all that I don't always agree with what FDA may do, they've, they've tried to be at least scientific in, in the decisions that they made, um, even if they, even if they are more aligned politically with one side versus the other. Uh, what we saw in the pandemic is the CDC and the NIH, I would say, and other uh, uh, health agencies ended up becoming much more partisan players. And we've seen FDA to start following suit, where they are starting to make decisions that are much more tribal and much less scientific. And that that's just bad for overall public trust in the institution. And I get why some of these decisions are made. Uh, but it's, um, uh, it's disheartening to see that tribalism is winning out over the scientific method and approach.
0: All right, last question, then I'll let you get to your, uh, your revolving door. Yeah. So, so let's say you're talking about w- whether it's the COVID vaccine or whether it's you know vaccines and autism and, and other sorts of things. You get, you get people who are tribal – uh, you know, on, on all of those things. And maybe you would agree with tribalism when it comes to, you know, the vaccine and autism link, because that, that seems like something that's a little bit more clear, <laughs> but, um, okay. how would you like, let's and, say, you're, and, you're and, and again, it,
1: it, it, you know, there's a difference between this being, you know, uh, you know, a broad population effect and this potentially being an individual, you know, adverse event. I mean, we both have an aunt who, um, you know, potentially suffered vaccine side effects from, I believe it was the polio vaccine. Right. And, um, you know, so I, I don't know if that actually happened or not, but there's at least a reason to suspect it and to, um, you know, to potentially explore that. And so it's interesting when, you know, people who are very aware of that situation, um, you know, are, are, are blind to, you know, the potential for vaccine side effects in a novel vaccine, much less, you know, one from, you know, from years ago. And, and, and it's interesting too, when we look at the data, And, and I, so I'll, I'll back up a little bit and then sort of frame most of this with, with you know, with um, the statement that the issue we're running into around COVID specifically is that we were not scientific in our approach. So we didn't run randomized control trials. We don't know, the data doesn't exist anymore and we've confounded the data set so we can't even run the trials today uh, to figure out what we don't know because we've totally confounded the data set um, with the approaches that we took that were fundamentally unscientific. So rather than running studies to see which intervention in a randomized control manner, actually are, you know, better or worse, what the safety effects are. We we didn't require that. We just did a population level uh, study without a control group. And and, and that is just, it's appalling from a scientific standpoint. Um, So we just don't have good data now. And you can basically say anything you want. And, you know, nobody can, 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 prove you wrong around certain, you know, sort of positions about COVID and vaccinations, et cetera, because the data is just not good because we didn't bother to collect it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not going to take a, you know, one side or the other, except to say we were unscientific in our approach. And I don't think there's any question about that. And And that I hold against the regulatory agencies. The regulatory agencies should have been more scientific in their approach and less driven by fear of what was happening because then we would have actually had information to drive future decision-making. But instead we had years of of, uh, of very little, if any good information, followed by you know, population level interventions, again, without good information. And so it's like, we have not learned from our mistakes, um and most of the people who were in 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 charge of those agencies and making those decisions are are not the kind of people we need running scientific agencies like that's you know, like fundamental number 1 you you want people running scientific agencies who are scientifically minded and are actually going to take
0: the steps needed so that we can have the information uh, to make good decisions in the future and you, mean and you don't want politicians and bureaucrats running scientific agencies Generally not.
1: Um, okay. And and yeah, and 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 that that is very much what you know what it's gotten to. And 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 this is back to again this sort of tribalism that we have at the moment, which is you know, agencies that are coming out and making statements that are not driven by science. They're not driven by scientific evidence. Uh, they're driven by a particular tribal opinion and perspective,
0: yeah. And it could have gone the other way, like. So, so, how do you how do you deal with that in conversation? You have people who, you know, they get their their five year old vaccinated when when they're completely healthy. They're not around anybody uh, who who's. Um, you know, it, susceptible.
1: They probably and, already had some and, level of natural immunity at that point. I mean, the the the, well, the number well, but at of, of school age children who who had it based on titers. I mean, when we go and look at who's had it and been exposed, just about everybody at this point, um, you know, has already been you know exposed, and most of those that are children were exposed naturally and 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 develop some kind of um, natural immunity. So, and and I'll I'll continue with with this other point the The problem with not having data is that, so there were some population level there's some population level information that's come out about the overall um, uh, uh, Let's say, uh, you know excess deaths, risk of mortality, right? in various populations. So those who weren't vaccinated, those who got the in the u s and in in other countries it will vary. but in the u s, the Johnson and Johnson. Uh, vaccine, which is more of a traditional vaccine, uh, and then the mRNA vaccines. And what we've seen is that the risk of of dying in the Johnson & Johnson vaccinated population is less than in the unvaccinated group, and the risk of dying in the um, mRNA uh, vaccinated group overall is higher. Uh, but the problem is, you can't just even take that at face value, because who would have fallen into each of these groups is is different, and so their basic level of risk on a population within these cohorts that have self-selected, it, it may not be that the mRNA vaccine is any more dangerous than the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. It may just be more vulnerable. More vulnerable people were more likely to get that vaccination. We don't even know at this point, I, I, you know, it's it's really tough to parse the data, you know, looking back. Um, and, and smarter people than I are exploring this and chasing it and trying to make heads or tails of a lot of this excess death data. Um, but I just point to it to say we fundamentally don't know the things we ought to know if we had approached this much more scientifically from the beginning. We would already have the answer. People wouldn't have to go try to do some you know obtuse statistical analyses to try to figure out, you know, uh, uh, what's the better approach, what should have we done? On top of which is, even if that data does come out, I'm fairly convinced based on how people have operated, that people aren't going to change their minds about what decision they made. Most people are going to double down that what I did was the right thing, and everybody else are a bunch of morons for not doing exactly what I did. And my view is what you should do in an individual circumstance is going to vary, and, and I probably can't tell you one way or the other what you should do, um, though you know, I, I have a framework for how I would deal with that in different cases, and it's mostly based on sort of the risk-benefit and trying to overall reduce the risk that you're exposing yourself to. Um, and there are certain circumstances where, you know, getting the vaccinations is probably a higher risk, um, especially if you're getting boosted. Like we know that for certain young men, the more boosters you get, the higher the likelihood is that you're getting certain sort of, you know, heart related issues. Um, and so, you know, it's gonna it's gonna be very nuanced and depend on the, on the particular, you know, situation. Um, and then I see, you know, blatant lies come out, uh, you know, about the data that we know, uh, you know, there were, I believe it was animal studies, but, you know, we saw in certain animal studies that uh, the spike proteins accumulated in ovaries, which means that there are certain risks for women that are probably higher than men because we didn't see a similar, you know, kind of, you know, effect. For testicles, you know, for testes, for instance. So, you know, just, there's just a, like, and whenever people are fact checking these statements, there's like an obfuscation, like this is the thing I've noticed, looking at news and looking at fact checking, they have a side that they want to be on, and then they fact check the argument they don't like, and find the narrow way in which it's either true or false to fit their narrative, as opposed to talk about how it's true and false you know, narrative aside, you know, and, and, and this is, it's the thing that drives me nuts about just about everybody involved as a side, they're trying to
0: tip the scale towards, and um,
1: maybe that's always been true,
0: but. Yeah. So so that's one thing that, that uh, comes up probably the most out of, out of all of, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the things that we discuss in propaganda is polarization. That's, that's kind of how it, it thrives in the sense that it creates an us versus them. It creates an enemy over there and then it supplies the savior. And I think that's you talking about how, I mean, it really is religious for both sides. If uh, I see, I see a lot of people in uh, the more conservative groups that I run in, uh, they, they're posting news articles all the time, like, you know, spike in in stroke deaths and young people and all kinds of stuff. And they're like, see, you know, we like or this we say, died
1: suddenly yeah. documentary that's that's yeah. that's going around. I don't know if you've seen this, but anyway.
0: Yeah, and so they're like, Well, see, you know, we did the right thing, and it's like, Well, maybe it was the right thing for you, right? Maybe it was, but it might not But have There's been no way,
1: better. even if it is, yeah. there's no way you could have known that when you made the decision. Like there's and yeah, it's like my intuition. This again, the flying unicorn. Yeah. Hopefully you can show it somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. this flying unicorn is true, is real. You know, it's like, but when you when you saw it first, there was no way for you. There was no way for you to know that that was true.
0: Yeah, yeah. Know. But then, then vice versa, you get get the people who are, you know, they would they would uh, immunize their their infant, their newborn, if they could, because that vaccine is their savior. And it's like you can't really have rational discussion where you say, well, some people should and some people shouldn't. It's like how do you bridge that gap between that tribalism, because, like you said, I completely agree with you. If data would come out, how, whichever way that data would go, the group that uh, it it disproved would completely not, and, and it might not even disprove a group. It, it might even just say, "Hey, there's a right and a wrong. Some people should, some people shouldn't." Like nobody would ever buy into that. So, how do you bridge that in conversation? It, it's, I, I try. You
1: you can bridge that in conversation. Usually, there, there's some basic rhetor- rhetorical tools you can use if you know somebody. You know, you can come alongside them and you can sort of walk in the same direction that they're walking in about certain things that you can agree with. So, the, the biggest thing, if you're trying to talk with people, um, and, and based on this conversation, and just, you know, your, your audience is, is probably pretty aware that I, I just can ramble on and on and on. Like, that's not what you do if you're trying to change somebody's opinion. The way to change somebody's mind is actually to listen, to hear what they have to say, find a point of agreement that you can chime in on and agree with them on something, it lowers somebody's guard. So it opens the possibility for them to receive something from you because otherwise if you're guarded and I've got my shield up and I'm just looking over it at you, there's no way anything you tell me is gonna penetrate those defenses or it's, it's very unlikely that anything you say will penetrate those defenses. Whereas if, we're on the same side about something. If we see something in the same way, all of a sudden I can lower that guard, at least for some area of our conversation, mm-hmm. and it gives an opening potentially for you to drop um, some truth you know, into a situation if you do it in a kind and loving way. And that's where most of us get that wrong. It's like you get somebody to drop their guard, you agree with them, and then you, like, stab them with truth. It's like, there, take that, you know. <laughs> you know? We we disagree on something fundamental, and now I've stabbed you with it. Like, that, that is not helpful to change somebody's opinion <laughs> or, to, or to take you seriously or lower their guard in the future with you, you know. So – um, you know, so that's that that's the basic thing, is 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 just trying to treat other people in a in a kind and loving way and find you know, find ways, you know, in conversation where you can agree with somebody and you can find a point of alignment, and then you can push back on some of those things gently where there might be a a misalignment and they might settle into a slightly different place. It's a, it's, a, it's a long and slow dance, I would say. You're not going to get them to your position, even if you're right. And, and I think most of us should actually have a little bit more humility in recognizing that there are things we're not even aware of that we're wrong about. So that, that would be my like first you know call out is find a place of agreement. That might be a more likely place that you're right is if there's a point of agreement with someone else. Um, But then be open to those areas that you might be wrong about. And that's actually where it can be really powerful is if somebody who you think is wrong about some area actually tells you something that challenges your perspective on reality enough that you shift your position like that can be really powerful when, you know, you, uh, you know, you find a point of alignment, you even change you know, your position, because they're, you know, you think they have a good point about how something should be, you know, addressed. Maybe it's just a nuance about your, you know, position, but being willing and open to, you know, to that, I think is helpful. And then on a population level, you know, on, on, you know, let's say at least on a national level here within the states, you know, the, the way forward is that we need to be doing things within our institutions that restore trust. And that requires our institutions to stop being political actors um, and stop being used as as political weapons. Um, you know, we 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 fundamentally need scientifically minded and oriented institutions. Um and and that's something that's going to take a long time to rebuild.
0: And um
1: and that's something that I'm working on. Right.
0: Good, good answer. Love. Um okay I'll let you get to the uh, the revolving door now.
1: <laughs> so I'm I'm actually in some ways you know uh, represented in this right so I had I had been at FDA for a number of years before I was at FDA I was at a medical device company I, I was in a lower level position and then um I, you know had some hands on experience with devices and, and ended up going and working at FDA again in a relatively low level you know position doing reviews of you know, medical device, uh, you know, submissions, you know, ended up in middle management when I was at FDA, ended up in uh, some more senior management at a company. When I left FDA, they had a specific challenge that they needed uh, uh, some help with uh, uh, navigating what FDA needed for some submissions. And most of what I did at that company was, was actually helping them go get the testing that they needed to present to FDA so FDA would be satisfied with what they saw much like what we were talking about, you know, earlier on. And, you know, and and then at that point I ended up going into consulting. I've helped, uh, you know, some small startups, uh, some medium-sized companies navigate FDA bureaucracy and regulations and uh, help them prepare for FDA to show up so that they can, you know, do a better job of, of um, uh, giving FDA what they need to get a positive result. And, you know there there are a lot of people like me who've served in government and and now are more in the private and you know consulting space the the real challenge though you know we you know this this is a it's a situation though which i you know i think can cause a lot of consternation you know among people that you get this movement of people from industry to FDA and then from FDA to industry it's mostly a big issue at the at the senior, very senior levels within FDA, and senior levels at very large multinational uh, uh, companies. Um, and, and it's most uh, uh, suspicious when you have somebody who's either come from industry, gone to FDA, and then goes back to the same company, or you get somebody who's been at FDA in a senior, you know, sort of capacity, and then they. Are involved in making a favorable decision for some company, who shortly thereafter, you know, ends up hiring them into some senior role or as a consultant, you know, paying them, you know, very high fees to advise them. <laughs> and some of that is just how the system is set up, and there are certain guardrails against that. Um, uh, you know, I can I can link a uh, an article, uh, you know, that I wrote about exactly this. Uh, recently just just about a week ago uh, i don't know when this will get you know get published, but you know i I, I wrote it before we spoke uh, and we can you know we can uh you know p- uh, post a link to it for people to check out if they want um, but you know fundamentally there's a real issue here in terms of public trust when it comes to this revolving door which i've been through right so i've I've gone from industry to fDA and fDA to industry and um and, and and there's something we 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 really need to do about that revolving door and and some some of it's making you know people aware of what guardrails there are against this um you know but 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 it's also you know it's also important to um you know to ensure that there's not this situation where we get a monoculture developing because you get this revolving door of people so whenever people spend a large amount of time together you, you start to build a, a specific culture and we talked about this a little bit with the medical uh, uh, you know companies or drug companies where they're very incentivized to do exactly what Fda is asking them to do and and some of that can even be driven uh, uh, you know by by the fact that some very senior FDA people may now be at that company, and there's now this alignment in terms of vision and and purpose uh, that that knits these companies and FDA together in terms of, of, of what direction uh, you know is being uh, you know forged, and, and and I think that that can be you know, that that can present certain dangers because we're likely to miss things we're likely to just settle in on status quo or settle in on a particular tribal way of seeing things because FDA and the drug companies tend to be fairly aligned on you know, certain perspectives. You wouldn't be at FDA reviewing drugs. You wouldn't be at a company developing drugs unless you shared certain basic you know, uh, worldviews, right? Just to begin with. And then that can get further exacerbated by this revolving door and people passing back and forth. And, and you get uh, you know, these well-worn tracks that I talked about in terms of, you know this is the way we're doing it, this is the way we've done it, um, this is how we've been successful. And there's a real inherent trap there in, in getting to where we need to be and making sure that we can restore public trust. Because the public is not gonna be very trustful uh, you know about a system which is which has got this revolving door between industry and f d a and where there's a perception at least that f d a is allowing all kinds of things onto the market which uh you know in, in in for you know for the public you know may in some cases be you know be hazardous and that's back to this idea that you know the 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 incentives politically and for agencies is Uh, to avoid harm, not to advance innovation, which is going to, um, you know, bring some, you know, bring some benefits. Um, It's it's, it's the harms that are easily calculated, right? You know, those that happen for a product that was approved by FDA. That you can point to very easily and say, look at the harm that was caused that FDA didn't stop. But it's very hard to, uh, you know, to be able to characterize and to quantify those harms that are caused because FDA is not moving fast enough to put other innovations on the market that would have done, uh, you know, uh, a lot of good, potentially even been life-saving for certain people who didn't have access to them. I mean, one really good example here in the drug space is HIV drugs and there was a public outcry about that. Um but you know, basically FDA, you know, doesn't tend to move on you know in some of those kinds of ways unless there is a
0: public outcry and a demonstration right outside their front doors. Can and, you be a little bit more specific on on that delay? Yeah, so I'm not familiar.
1: It, yeah, so it used, so this was um in Rockville, Maryland, there there were some demonstrations that happened. Oh, uh, I've got I've got a picture of that too somewhere. Uh, 1988 AIDS protest at the at the FDA, uh, October 11th, 1988. Uh, AIDS activists occupied the Food and Drug Administration headquarters in Rockville, Maryland, to protest for improved treatment and care. A- at that point there were drugs that were being developed to help AIDS patients and they weren't available uh, on the U S market and they weren't available to people experimentally or otherwise. And so you would actually, I think this, uh, th- 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 there was a, um, uh, there was a movie, uh, you know, about one of, uh, you know, one of the guys involved, uh, you know, here, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of this where. I I believe they were going to Canada to get drugs and bring them in, I think, legally so that people would have access to life-saving drugs in the U.S. because the U.S. FDA wasn't, um, you know, wasn't allowing, uh, uh, you know, access to those, you know, to those drugs. And so it fundamentally changed FDA's approach, you know, to managing, you know, drug access. Um, I, I would argue it didn't move the needle far enough, you know, in terms of access. Um, I would, I would like to see actually more broad availability of drugs, even experimentally to physicians, uh, with appropriate consent to patients. Um, but I also see that on the flip side, we end up, uh, uh putting, you know, labeling for, you know, for drugs, uh, you know, in terms of what indications they can be used for, what, what they can treat, which I consider to be, you know, sometimes bogus um and the drug companies would argue they'd done studies and they showed some defined benefit but like for instance there's there's one drug a doctor had been trying to convince me to take and when i go and i look at the studies um the control group so that the group where nothing is done uh 3 out of 10 of those people get better without any intervention okay and in the treatment group 4 out of 10 people better. So the improvement is a 10% improvement on a population level, right? Because three out of 10 of those people were getting better without any intervention. You've seen an improvement of in, in one out of 10 of those uh, subjects with the drug. Um, but you also see some really scary and sometimes fatal side effects. You, you, you have this interesting you know, situation where you know I would argue we don't put enough Uh, drugs in the hands of physicians to use um, with, you know, with appropriate safeguards in terms of patient, you know, consent, et cetera. But at the same time, we then approve the drugs that are on the market, again, for those big existing players, similar to something we talked about earlier about, um, you know, the incentive structures benefiting current uh, companies and current, you know, supplier relationships, et cetera. Um, we, you know, we're, we're, we're expanding the indications for what existing drugs, uh, you know, can be marketed to do, you know, what, you know, what they can treat. And that's, um, I don't know, it's just, it, it's very interesting if you, if you start, you know, uh, uh going down that rabbit hole. Yeah.
0: Um, I think I've I've exhausted all of my my questions that I can think of. I think you've covered you've covered uh pretty much everything that um I could have imagined getting to. So it's just like a, a a short recap and then you can maybe correct me on anything or or fill in any important points that you think I missed. But Absolutely. um <clears throat> so it seems like today people are very tribal and and that seems to extend into the institutions which are tribal or what we'd call probably political right being political instead of seeking truth seeking position power um advantage of some sort and And, and the
1: agencies themselves accrue power to themselves as opposed to serving the interests of the constituents that they're you know tasked with serving or the people that they're supposed to help so you know there's there's that
0: power dynamic as well yeah and because of that they they do things that are either deceitful or untruthful or not in the best interest of their constituents and therefore they they lose trust and which polarizes people even more because uh, you know some groups see conspiracies everywhere and and other groups uh, who agree with the political decisions are like, well they've got my interests at least so I- I'm all on board uh, And what we end up seeing is that maybe there's not one overarching big huge conspiracy uh uh illuminati type conspiracy thing but when interests converge and you get these systems that can be manipulated or systems that uh, by happenstance have kind of landed the way that they are and advantage the people that they advantage those things get solidified and you get this cyclical revolving door effect um which just perpetuates and and exacerbates and maybe uh, you know grows the problem over time.
1: And, and I would just add, it's oftentimes not out of a nefarious intention, right? Uh, but there's a willful blindness to those things uh, that aren't in service of my interests, right? And 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 I think to some extent that's human but we see it permeating our institutions at the moment where people are willfully blind to counterfactuals that don't suit their particular narrative. Um, and, and that's a very easy thing to fall into as a human being, you know, because we don't see reality as it is. I mean, even our visual system, you know, is, 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 you know, we're talking about, um, or, or you were talking about detective work, right? I mean, the, it's it's notorious how faulty human vision is in terms of seeing things that aren't there or not seeing things that are right in front of you. Um, and, and so we do the same things in our minds in terms of the positions that we hold and maybe the reasons we should reconsider holding those positions in the first place.
0: Yeah, there are all kinds of, of mental uh, illusions and, and things that go on. Uh, you, so confirmation bias is something that happens a lot, but then, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with change blindness, but where mm-hmm. you kind of just, you just see what's normal and, and you don't notice the change, even when it's drastic. I don't know if you've ever seen that, the, the basketball one, you know, where they're yes, all I love that. <laughs> I, I love
1: that with that, with, the, with yeah. the guy in the gorilla suit or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, every nobody ever gets it. I didn't get it, and it's just it's astounding that you can miss something so obvious.
1: And the things that are right under your nose, you tend to start ignoring as well. And that's that's one of the things that um, you know. So, like right now, I've got a lot of clutter in front of me on the desk, but I, my my brain spends a certain amount of energy just ignoring it. Right. Whereas if I'd actually gone and cleaned it up, spent some real energy doing that. My brain wouldn't have to constantly spend cycles ignoring, you know, the clutter.
0: Um, so right, it's, and it's it's, 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 yeah. it's amazing. Like our house will be cluttered. We are we are um, not, not super disorganized, but we just, you know, we have different priorities, I guess. And I don't notice the clutter until it's like, hey, we've got company coming over today. When did the house become such a mess? It's like that, that trigger of, oh, we have company coming over today helps me to see things that I didn't see just a yeah. minute ago.
1: And, um, and that's fundamentally one of the challenges with bureaucracy, right? So one, the clutter accumulates. But two, we've gotten used to ignoring a lot of what's there. So we don't even see or people within the bureaucratic state don't see the impact that that clutter has on everybody around them or on the you know sort of on 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 how things would otherwise operate if they cleaned it up a little bit and there's also this situation where th- there's not a lot of reinvention right it's like th- this is what we've been doing uh, we've been doing it for a long time and you don't necessarily recognize the reasons that people started doing that thing in the first place and the situation on the ground may have changed such that it doesn't make sense to be doing that anymore so you know one one for instance there that i'll leave you with is um you know fda started as a small number of people uh, and basically i believe it was called the poison squad this is back you know uh late 1800s early 1900s um, you know, the, the, the these folks were tasting, like trying out different commercial like foods and seeing if they got sick. And if they did, they'd do some further investigation, right? And at that point, with a group that small, it made sense that you had to bring everything to you. But anymore, the the size and and scale of what we're doing at an institution like FDA there are so many people there, they could actually go out and visit all of the facilities directly. They wouldn't have to bring everything to them. And so fundamentally, when you hit certain scales, the way that you should operate in being most efficient and most effective uh, might change. And I would argue uh, that we've gotten to that kind of a situation right now with a lot of our institutions where they continue to do the things the way they've always done, but the reasons they used to do those things in the manner that they did them it's no longer the situation uh and we should be rethinking how we go about doing business at some of these uh you know federal agencies because they can be a lot more effective if they go out
0: instead of bring everything to them all right well i uh i told catalina midnight and it's it's a. Uh right about that it's right, a little that, bit after, it's right so. about that time so well thank, thank you, you so for much. your
1: patience and in, in uh you know we, we always tend to go long but i'm i'm uh I'm, I'm glad you put up with my you know long-winded uh you know conversational stuff
0: no i appreciate it yeah yep now, now you you've love- got to
1: send it to the editors. It'll be like a 10 minute, uh, you know, edited clip. You know, you can take out
0: all the, uh, all the extra bits and pieces. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm the, I'm the editor. So, I, which. So not so gen- much, Pu-
1: publish it in it's full on un- adult, you know, on, un- on, unedited. Mo-
0: most of the time I do, I do very, very little editing. Um, I'll have to do a little bit more on this one just because of the, the breaks and because of the breaks. But um, Yeah. Uh, I generally, I, I've got a list of questions, but with this one, it was more of just chatting and seeing where it went. So,
1: well, hopefully we covered all the bases and if we didn't,
0: I'm sure we can, we we, can chat again soon.
1: Right. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I, I hope it was useful and helpful for your audience and, um, I, I, uh, inquire, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, negative feedback from people um, or, or I solicit it and welcome it. So yeah. if anybody, uh, you know, has, um, you know, some ideas about where I'm horribly wrong in any particular, I would, I would love to hear it. Uh, you know, so please, uh, so please do send Derek your negative feedback so that I can get it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right.
0: Sounds good. All right. Thank you. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.